Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration, and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. It's evening, and we are floating here in Deepwater Basin. And Deepwater Basin is situated on New Zealand's South Island's west coast, under the Southern Alps, and I'm looking at a 600-meter cliff of granite covered in rainforest. And to my right is the Arthur River Valley, which is an enormous glaciated valley, the end of the famous Milford Track. And continuing to the south, West, you will find the Tasman Sea and the rest of Fjordland National Park. And it has been something I've wanted to do the entire time I've been here to paddle out with my guest this evening, Courtney Quintrell, a fellow guide here at Roscoe's Milford Kayaks, and interview her in what's been for the past season, Courtney's Natural Habitat, guiding sea kayaking expeditions. And each expedition either begins or ends here in Deepwater Basin. Courtney, thank you so much for joining me here on location to record this interview in sea kayaks that are gently bumping together here in Deepwater Basin. Cheers, Mandela. Nice to be here. Courtney, before the light changes too much, can we just have you describe what you see right now? I am floating in a yellow esquia. It's a sea kayak, the ones we use for guiding here in Milford. And around me is Ata Finua, uh, or the Shadowlands, known as Fjordland. And I'm calling them Ata Finua right now because the sun's going down and they are making massive silhouettes in the sky. There's not a cloud in the sky right now. And it's a really beautiful twilight. And I'm looking to my right at Lady Bowen Falls, pouring out of the Hanging Valley, and Mount Pembroke with its massive glacier further out in the fjord and a bunch of cray fishing boats buzzing around in deep water basin and next to me in uh, another yellow sea kayak sitting just in the opposite direction rafted up is Mandela. Wonderful. Courtney, can you tell us a little bit about these mountains and how tall they are to put in perspective for the listener and how they might have been carved? We're sitting on the Indo-Australian and Pacific plates right here in Pio Pio Tahi, or Milford Sound. And millions of years ago, there was a big subduction earthquake, and the Indo-Australian plate got submerged, and the Pacific plate got pushed up, and it created all of these beautiful mountains in Fjordland and the Southern Alps that run the length of the South Island of New Zealand. But since the mountains got pushed up, we've experienced multiple ice ages and glaciation periods and each time that happened massive glaciers formed and they got so heavy under their own weight they moved out of the mountains towards sea level due to gravity and as they did this they carved out the granite mountains and all of these massive vertical walls some of them 
The summits around us are about 1,400 meters. Some of them are over 2,000 meters, like Mount Pembroke. Right behind us is Mount Sheardown, standing at over 1,800 meters. Uh, they're just massive walls, the type of walls that you look at and you think about scaling if you're a climber or jumping off if you're a paraglider or a base jumper. But even if that stuff's not your cup of tea, you still just look around it all in awe. But uh, yeah, when the glaciers melted and receded, the Tasman Sea flooded the fjords with salt water. And we've got a couple of rivers running out of the glaciated valleys and pouring into deep water basin where we're floating. Courtney, as we float here, I'd love for you to take us back to where you come from. Now, you were born in California, but you grew up in Washington and Alaska. And then recently, for the past four seasons, you've been coming down and guiding sea kayaking here where we're floating in the Milford Sound, in Piopiotahe, Atafenawa, the Land of Shadows, Fjordland National Park. But take us back to your childhood. Where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood? I was born in Southern California and adventure was part of my childhood down there hanging out with all of my cousins and going to the beach and swimming and body surfing and running around in my grandparents pools and such but we left California when I was five which I'm very grateful for it's quite a busy place really beautiful but moved north to the Pacific Northwest where we had family and then I grew up in Washington State in a wee town called Woodland and it sits on the Lewis River between Clark and Cowlitz County and it's right near Mount St. Helens which was a volcano that blew up in the year before I was born so when we moved there we used to go up there a lot and check out Spirit Lake and everything and everything was covered in ash and all the trees were broken burnt sticks and yeah you could always see it from my parents house and the lakes that were just up the road they bought 10 acres on the Lewis River and that's where I got to grow up so I was pretty lucky mowing fields and working with my dad and my brothers and my mom massive veggie garden and stuff but yeah we just played around there and had a kayak and fishing rods and a four-wheeler and got to get out of the busier southern california and grow up in a bit of acreage in the beautiful pacific northwest and it's quite cool because i go back now and really love looking at the house that we all built and i grew up in and how the gardens have gotten bigger and Mount St. Helens now is just completely rejuvenated with new trees and plants and fish in the streams and everything and you can still see remnants of the volcano's destruction but it's pretty cool to see how it's all uh, grown back. If you've just joined us, the trail has traveled is now floating on top of deep water basin in two necky sea kayaks in the Milford Sound in Fjordland National Park on New Zealand's South Island's remote and isolated west coast. And tonight I'm interviewing Courtney Quintrell, and she is an international adventure guide who specializes in sea kayaking and soon whitewater kayaking as well as climbing and navigation through thick bush here in New Zealand for Outward Bound. And she's going to be doing that for the next three years. But I'm catching her before her next adventure. 
takes off. And Courtney, I'd love for you to just tell us about Alaska and what you've learned from that terrain. I was lucky enough to have one of my best friends, Joanna Johnson, move to Alaska. Her college roommate was from Alaska, and she ended up falling in love with the place and all of our friends and her now husband, Sean. And I went up to visit her in 2008, and we hiked Kasugi Ridge in Denali National Park and road tripped down to Homer at the tip of the Kenai Peninsula. And I've just had some fishing adventures and camping adventures, had a black bear pushing its nose on our tent when we were hanging out in Hope one night. That was pretty exciting. And I loved it. Then the next year I moved up to Alaska. Well, I went to Alaska for the summer and then didn't leave for a couple of years. It's one of the most amazing places in the world to me. It's very dear to my heart. And the mountains are so insane. They're so glaciated. There's nothing like seeing the mountains and the Wrangles and the Alaska Range. They're big, big mountains, and they're awe-inspiring. And we get to fly in them quite a bit, and so that is absolutely amazing. I'm lucky enough to have quite a few pilots that are friends back home, or friends that are pilots. (laughs) But, yeah, it's incredible flying in, in and around those mountains, and I was lucky enough I got to do a wee bit of paragliding last time I was in Alaska and that was pretty special just to run off a mountain and be airborne and looking out at the Alaska range as the sun was setting that was off of Baldy and Eagle River and that was a pretty sweet night that was just my last time I was home in Alaska so every time I go home it's usually a pretty good time. Courtney what have you learned from your time in the wild of Alaska? It makes you feel very small, in a good way, though. Everything in Alaska is very big and extreme. The mountains and the rivers, the wildlife, and it's very remote. There's only just over 700,000 people in Alaska, and I don't know exactly how much bigger Alaska is than New Zealand, but I'm guessing at least like 20 times the size. And So that's less people than we have on the South Island here. And when you go out into remote Alaska, you're in remote Alaska. There's no one there to help you out. The mountains in New Zealand are honest mountains and you have to have a lot of respect for them. But yeah, I feel a bit safer in New Zealand, to be honest, because everything's so much closer. We're pretty remote here (laughs) in Milford. Yeah, we're two of just a couple people here in Milford, really. There's Yeah, we're the only ones floating around out here at night, but (laughs) it's pretty awesome. The Alaska Wild just makes me feel real tiny, and it's very good at challenging me. just makes me feel like I have to trust myself that much more if I go out by myself in Alaska, which is a cool thing to experience. You are on the trail less traveled the community's source for adventure information and inspiration. And tonight the show is being harvested for you in a sea kayak, which is rafted up to my guest's sea kayak. And it's quite dark out, actually. We've been out here floating around for a while, so both of our eyes have adjusted to the darkness. There's a big fishing boat that's unloading a load of cray. 
perhaps a truck has pulled up in the night to get the cray, and that truck will drive the only road in and out of here, 123 kilometers to the nearest town, Teanu. And Courtney and I are just two folks, like she said, floating in some sea kayaks at night in deep water basin. If we paddled for 15 kilometers right now from where we are to the northwest, we would come to the Tasman Sea. And potentially, if we kept paddling and a nice offshore was blowing us, we could come to Tasmania. But tonight, we're going to stay here in deep water and pretty soon probably paddle in. But Courtney, I'd like to learn about perhaps a moment for you in the evolution of you as an adventurer, where you had an experience and you learned a lesson from that experience. Well, my first year in Alaska, when I first moved up there and made the amazing group of friends that I met, I came after kind of a rough time. I had lost to my cousin and a good friend of mine named Jan, so my cousin Ryan and my buddy Jan, both to two different incidences, and so that was pretty rough, and just finished university and everything, and uh, yeah, went up to Alaska for the summer, and ended up staying for a couple of years, and made friends with these really amazing people. All my friends in Alaska, the way they met was at the University of Alaska Anchorage Outdoor Club. They started the club, I don't know, like more than 15 years ago, probably getting closer to 20 years ago now. And they were all from different walks of life and majors, but uh, loved skiing and climbing and hiking and camping and kayaking and such. And so they all started hanging out. And years later, now we've all been in each other's weddings and everybody's having kids and stuff and they're all getting to know each other. It's pretty awesome. A really amazing group of people. And when I first moved up to Alaska, I became friends with all of these folks through Joanna. And a couple of years later, our good friends, Seth and Brandon, were out scouting for moose. Just went for a scenic flight, like just to cruise around. And Brandon was a younger bush pilot in Alaska and they were flying around in his super cub and they fell out of the sky and we lost both of them and it was a pretty rough experience but I guess that was when I finally got over losing Jan and Ryan too and helped my friends deal with losing more people that we loved. I guess the cool kind of crazy thing was that a few days after their funerals, which were pretty fun parties. We did a good job of getting out in the wilderness and doing some awesome camping missions and hikes and stuff to celebrate those guys. But I was uh, about to leave Alaska to go to a wedding in Idaho. And I went to say goodbye to my buddy Joe at the anchor. And he introduced me to Thane. And he was like, oh, I've got this mean open cockpit biplane. And you want to go for a flight tomorrow. I'm trained to do all these aerial acrobatic tricks and do barrel rolls and all this. And this was only like a week after a couple of my friends had died in a plane accident. But 
I said yes, and then the next day went for one of the most amazing flights of my entire life. It was so epic. It was a 1940s biplane with open cockpits for the parachute is strapped onto your seat and you're strapped into the plane. And we're actually flying like all over Lake Hood and just outside of Anchorage and north into the mountains and he's doing barrel rolls and we were inverted for a while so just upside down in this open cockpit plane and you could hear it stall when he was going up and then the engine kicked back in so it's just like and then it took off again and it was so amazing and I had this most ridiculous smile on my face that whole time and he said he'd never done that many tricks back to back, but he just could see me smiling, so he kept going. And um, Tigers, this is the on in. Dinner is ready. <laughs> so our radios just came on to let all kayakers, all kayakers, which would include Mandela and myself, that dinner is ready at the Petalon Inn. <laughs> so we'll have to wrap this up soon, I'm guessing. But uh, I guess the, the end to that story was that now when I do things, I really do things for all of those guys that are gone. And I learned a lot from them being in my life and they're still in my life. And they were amazing. I used to surf with Ryan, snowboard with Jan, ski or climb or play with Seth and Brandon and skydive with Will. And I just think about them in a good way now. And they are part of why I try to go hard or like kaikaha, as I would say in New Zealand. Yeah, they're my reminders every day to keep doing fun, crazy stuff, because it's good. <laughs> if you just tuned in, you are listening to The Trail Less Traveled, outdoor adventure with Mandela on the Trail 1033. That's the voice of my guest this evening, Courtney Quintrell. And Courtney and I are floating in two necky sea kayaks that are rafted up together in the darkness of Deepwater Basin, which is in Fjordland National Park on New Zealand's South Island's west coast. And it's too dark now for kayaks to be out here without a light on. And we are probably going to paddle back because we got the radio call that dinner's ready for all kayakers. So, Courtney, it's time for a song. I like to have my guests share music and songs with the listener that inspire them or remind them of their life's adventures. So can you share with us a song that reminds you of your early childhood adventures? Tom Petty's Wildflowers would be a song that reminds me of my youth. My dad says that we stole his music because my brothers and I listened to a lot of classic rock. And yeah, that's one of the songs I suppose I stole from my dad. Hey there, Mandela here. During the short break from the show, I'm keen to give you an insider's tip on the most comfortable clothing I've ever traveled in. Karuna clothing. Karuna clothing is handcrafted from natural fabrics, which soften naturally as they age. Karuna clothing, made by my friend Karen in Missoula, Montana, has designed their clothing lines to fit the moods of the places which have inspired them. They design simply and use the best fabrics. They create their own unique colors, strong and well-sewn with love and laughter. 
My Karuna clothing skirt is the first thing I tossed into my duffel bag for this trip to record the trail less traveled on location in New Zealand. You can find out more about this fine clothing and buy a unique piece for yourself at karunaclothing.com. That's K-A-R-U-N-A clothing.com. Back to Mandela and the trail less traveled. We are recording the trail less traveled on location in some sea kayaks that are bumping together right before sunset in Deepwater Basin, which is in the Milford Sound, the most northern fjord in Fjordland National Park. And sitting here in my kayak, right next to me is Courtney Quintrell in her kayak, and we are picking up from where we left off. We were recording last night here, and it got too dark to continue recording, so we're taking off where we left off last night. Courtney, you were born in California. You spent early evolution of you as an adventurer in both Washington and Alaska. And now you have called New Zealand home for the past four and a half years. You guide sea kayaking expeditions here for Roscoe's Milford Kayaks. You also brew beer. You're a skydiver, whitewater kayaker. You're about to pick up a three-year contract with Outward Bound, teaching whitewater kayaking as well as navigation in the rainforest. Badass! Babe alert! Courtney Quinchell. So can you take us back to coming to New Zealand? four and a half years ago. I've been wanting to come to New Zealand for, well, I guess back then it was about nine years. Our mutual friend, Marissa Wright, she came over here ages ago on a working holiday visa and told me about it. And she actually used to work for Roscoe's, this sea kayaking company. It's brought a lot of beautiful souls together. And that's when I first found out about the working holiday. And I always wanted to do it, and you had to be between 18 and 30 to get that visa. And when I was 28, I was like, oh, I've really wanted to do this for a long time. I better make it happen. And so I saved up money for two years, and then I came over here and bought a van, a Toyota Townace, and I took the seats out of it and built my little house. It was like a little couch that converted into a bed, and I would put a retractable little table that I built into it, and I'm a cooker and chili bin and traveled the whole country from Cape Ranga at the very top of the North Island all the way down to Bluff and uh, Southland and then eventually ended up in Fjordland where I thought I was going to spend six months and ended up getting here with only like seven weeks left on my visa and totally fell in love with this place and the people here and then Roscoe sponsored me on a skilled workers visa I used to be a river guide in Alaska, and so I had guiding experience and experience playing around in kayaks. Here I am, (laughs) four and a half years later, on my third visa, and now I'm applying for residency in New Zealand. So yeah, I'm definitely a fan. This place is pretty special. Courtney, soon after you arrived in New Zealand, you went on the path of becoming a skydiving instructor. Can you tell us about that journey, please? Yeah, I'm not an instructor. I just got my license to solo jump, like just to sport skydive. Uh, I'm a long ways away from being that cool. 
But some of my friends are instructors, and they're pretty awesome. But they have thousands of skydives, where I'm kind of a baby skydiver still at this stage. A few of my mates back home in the States and in Alaska are sports skydivers. And I went to the Lost Prairie Boogie in Montana with my friend Zach, and he used to fly for them ages ago. And he'd always gone back to the boogie, and he's a skydiver. And some of our other mates had been there, and so I went, and it It was so much fun, and that was my second skydive I'd ever done, tandem. And when I got on the ground, they were all like, oh, how was it? How was it? I was like, it was awesome. I was thinking about like how I would fly the canopy and the mechanics of it and stuff. And when they're like expecting me to just be buzzing like crazy, which of course I was, but they're like, you just need to get your license. And I left for New Zealand like the next month. And so then I decided, well, I'm in New Zealand for the next year. Maybe I'll do it here. And then I randomly met my friend, Ian on the street and Topo on the North Island and he is a paraglider and skydiver as well and he recommended uh, Jeff Mundy that's who instructed him and he was the instructor in Topo and I went and saw Jeff and then next thing I knew I was thrown down for the AFF course the accelerated freefall course and I had the time and the cash because I had saved up to come to New Zealand and so that's what I did for a a couple of months. I just hung out at the drop zone and folded canopies all the time and learned a lot from all the other skydivers there and I got all my jumps in and finished the free fall course and then did the rest of them to get my license to finish my A license so yeah it was pretty sweet. Courtney, will you take us to the accelerated freefall course and tell us about what you learn as a skydiver? Maybe someone listening has never jumped out of an airplane before. So what are some of the physics that you learn as a skydiver? Basically, the AFF course is just to make sure that you're not going to kill yourself or at least the likelihood is less and decrease the liability for the crazy instructors who teach skydiving because they're the real crazy ones. But anyway... Basically, they teach the general public <laughs> how to skydive in an AFF course. So if you want to learn to skydive, you can pay to go to this course. And you learn a lot of theory and stuff on the ground about malfunctions and canopies and flying your body and how to pull your canopy and when to do that and looking at reading your altimeter and the gear that is necessary. And then you practice just hanging in a harness and pulling your malfunctioning canopy and basically they call it cutting away and then pulling your reserve and all of that kind of stuff. You practice on the ground and then you get up in the air and you're supposed to have nine skydives and by if you do everything properly then you learn something different in each one but you have to kind of complete something in each one and progress and then your ninth one is when you're actually jumping out of a s- airplane solo if you've done everything by then. If you don't, then you can repeat jumps. So maybe your first solo jump might be your 11th or something. So the things that you have to do are basically stabilize yourself in free fall. So yeah, you jump out with a couple of instructors and they just make sure that you can, they call it push the bush. You have to push your pelvic bone down 
and the rest of your body is like a limp noodle. And so you have to completely relax your body except for just pushing your pelvic bone forward. And that is how your body stabilizes in free fall. And if you can do that, you can pull your canopy and that means you're less likely to have a malfunction and entangle yourself. And then you can land because the most important thing about flying is landing. <laughs> so that's what you have to prove that you can do in the AFF course. Then you got to start doing cannonballs out of planes and stuff, and it's pretty good. <laughs> and then you have to start doing cannonballs out of planes, and yeah, it's pretty good. That's the voice of Courtney Quintrell, and we're sitting here floating in a couple of necky sea kayaks in Deepwater Basin on New Zealand's South Island here in the West Coast. I'm looking at a mountain that's 2,034 meters tall and it has a glacier on it, the last remaining glacier from the ice ages that have come through here and shaped this place. Courtney, can you tell the listeners a little bit about where you are as far as the Maori mythology behind it? Because you have a love for the Maori mythology and I'd love for you to share what you know about this place. There is the story that glaciers carved out Milford Sound and Fjordland, but the Maori have a different version and it's a pretty beautiful legend. So in Maori culture, there's Ranganui. He is the sky father and Papatūnuku is the earth mother. And they had lots of children and one of them was named Tu Taraki Fa Noa. And we just call him Tu around here for short. He wanted an important job. He wanted a task that was going to make his name stand the test of time. So he hit his folks up, and uh, what they did was they gave him a punamu aids, the greenstone axe, and asked him to carve out a mountainous land in the southern part of Eoteoroa. And so they let him loose in the southwest corner of the South Island, and he began to carve out Ata Fenua, or the shadowlands known as Fjordland. And he was pretty new at the whole carving thing, so he carved out preservation in Chalky Inlet, just kind of hacking away at the land down there. Mountains are a bit all over the show, lots of islands and such, and moved up to Dusky and Doubtful Sound and was still getting pretty rugged in his carving. And he invited his folks to check it all out. And they came down and they said, Too, this is beautiful, but we think you can do better. So... Just take your time, son. Nice, smooth mountain lines, you know, perfect your craft. Watch your rubbish. Don't be flinging boulders all over the show. So he kept carving and he kept carving, and eventually he carved out 14 fjords, and his final fjord was Pio Piotahi, or Milford Sound. And he decided that this was going to be his masterpiece. So he'd gotten pretty good at carving by the time he got this far north and he sang a special Maori chant and it took him one clean swoop with his punamu aids and he carved out Pio Piotahi and that's why we have the most vertical walls in Fjordland here and the most stunning mountains and some of the tallest mountains in the national park because he was pretty smooth with his aids no big rocky islands in the middle of the fjord here and so when he invited his folks down to see this place, they had a look around and they said, well done, son, this is it. 
this is your masterpiece. And they were so impressed with this place, they decided to throw a big party to celebrate. So they invited all the Fano down and all the Maori gods and demigods came to Pio Pio Tahi. And they were loving this place and they bestowed gifts on the land and the fjords at Tongaroa, his brother, he's the god of the sea, he gifted to the sea flooded the fjords with salt water. Tane Mahuta carpeted the mountains with all the trees. He's the god of the forest and gave us the birds. And eventually, Hene Nui Tepo, she's the goddess of the underworld. She decided this isn't the go. Well, everybody's going to love this beautiful place too much. Everyone's been sticking around here for too long. You all want to live here, and it's going to ruin this place. More and more people are going to come, and they're going to want to stay forever. And look at you, you've all become idle. No one's getting anything done anymore. No one's going back to their jobs. So she decided to give a gift to Pio Pio Tahi and to all of Ata Fenua. And in the Arthur Valley, near where Mandela and I are sitting, she drew from the earth two big black monsters. And these monsters had millions of babies known as Tainamu. And Tainamu translates in Māori to little devils. And those are New Zealand sandflies. So they're a gift to Pio Pio Tahi to preserve and protect all the beauty that Mandela and I are surrounded by. And when they come out and start biting us, they're just letting us know whether for a day, a season, or a couple of years, we're all just guests here and none of us can stay forever. Beautiful. Thank you, Courtney. That is the story of Tutraki Fanoa and how he carved this place that we are floating in right now. Courtney and I are in two neckies sea kayaks that we use as guides every day and we just headed out into deep water basin but the breeze has picked up i think we might be having a non-shore that's bouncing off the shear downs and that wind is coming right back at us and that's not too strong but we need to make a plan because we're slowly but surely floating towards what eventually would be the tasman sea and well tasmania so we're gonna make a plan and it's time now for us to take a break so courtney can you while you're here and the wind is blowing you and we're holding our kayaks together share a song with us that has reminded you of your journey thus far in Aotearoa, New Zealand Barefoot Bluegrass their song Feel Free they're mates of mine from Alaska actually Todd and Angela and a couple of the crew they're amazing bluegrass musicians and that was like my theme song the year I came to New Zealand and travelled around by myself This evening, the trail less traveled is being recorded in New Zealand on the South Island. And my guest, Courtney Quintwell, and I are both into Neki sea kayaks. And every day we use these boats to guide, and now we're just recording in them. And it's working out pretty well. And we decided to change direction. We paddled to the entrance to the Arthur River Valley. Courtney, I'd love to talk to you now about this valley that's behind us, the glaciated valley that's just behind us. And the journey that some of the Māori would have taken for the past 800 years to come here to collect greenstone. 
and why that green stone is so precious. So at the entrance to Melford Sound, where it meets the Tasman Sea, there's a beach out there and it's called Greenstone Beach. And there's a Maori legend that Maui, a Maori god who fished New Zealand from the sea, he had multiple wives and one day his wives had left him and he went and searched all around the Aotearoa the South Island of Aotearoa for his wives and he found his favorite wife turned to Punamu, turned to Greenstone, uh, the head of Pio Pio Tahi, and he began to cry over her statue and as he cried his tears penetrated the statue and it shattered into millions of pieces which now cover the beach and that's where all of the Greenstone that's on Greenstone Beach comes from but it's a special form of Greenstone here and it's called Takawai and has this flex in it and those are Maui's tears. Takawai means tear water. So that beach that's covered with all of this special softer form of Greenstone was sacred or is sacred to the Nagai Tahu, the Maori iwi in this area. They have been coming here for a long time over the mountains that we're looking at uh, in the Arthur Valley. Then they would have kept outrigger canoes or wakas here on Arthur Island, which is just to the left of Mandela and I, and then paddled the wakas all the way out to the Tasman Sea to collect the punamu out there, the greenstone, and fish and flax, and then they'd weave themselves new flax sandals, paddle it all back, maybe after a quick trip through Waimanu, Sterling Falls. It's like our fountain of youth here in Melford. It kept the Maori warriors young and strong. And then they'd cruise back down the Arthur Valley and then store the wakas and hike everything out over the mountains. And that's how the Maori have been coming into Pio Pio Tahi for hundreds of years. Courtney, will you take us through a typical day during the busy year when, just a couple of weeks ago, when we were busy and you were working what's called the morning glory and the afternoon delight trips. For someone listening who maybe isn't familiar with sea kayaking here, what are some of the things you're doing? Weather, gear, wind. Yeah, sure. First of all, pretty classic names for the trips, eh? morning glory and afternoon delight. Welcome to Roscoe's Milford Kayaks. Pretty fun place to work. And the Morning Glory is actually my favorite trip to guide. And those are our longest paddles. So ideally, you're trying to show the clients the length of the entire fjord within about three and a half hours. So it's a pretty continuous paddle. And the glory starts here in Deepwater Basin. And it usually begins at about 5.45 or 6.30 a.m. Before the sun has come up, you're meeting the clients in the car park with your headlamp on. And then you get them all geared up in uh, sea kayaking fashion, which for Roscoe's includes some stripy polys and some thick dark green fleeces and then a spray skirt uh pretty awesomely water resistant uh (laughs) high-vis yellow jacket for one of the wettest places in the world and uh, buoyancy aid and then we give them dry bags so we kit them all out we've even got pogies for their hands it gets pretty cold down here and then give them a bit of a paddle briefing mandela's is amazing she includes some stretching which i think is really 
highly valuable and I've picked up that tip from her. So give them a lowdown on the kayaks. They're either in Dobies or Amaroks, which are tandem sea kayaks, uh, nice, sturdy, durable plastic ones. And then we take them out kayaking in Milford Sound. And that is different every day and every trip. And that's probably one of the coolest things about this job because every day is different. But the best thing about it is the weather. So I've paddled a few places in the world been lucky enough to paddle quite a bit all over the western coast of the states and in Alaska and yeah I've never paddled anywhere as crazy as Fjordland this place is nuts especially when it's stormy and we take guests out here and it's really fun especially on the windy days I kind of live for those days the sunny days are nice too and it's nice to paddle in the calm but this place comes to life when it's got some wind and some water in it. It's pretty spectacular every day, but when there's thousands of massive waterfalls just pumping into the fjord after days and days of nonstop rain. I've been in here when we've had a half a meter of rain in just about 24 hours, and when the wind gusts have gotten to over 100 knots gusting in the fjord, and it's pretty, pretty amazing pretty powerful to see mother nature like that and sometimes when we've had to cancel trips the guides have gone out just to have a bit of fun and the big pressure waves in the leads and they can get a good two meters where you don't see each other on the other side of the waves and paddling in massive wave trains created by Bowen Falls and yeah that's pretty fun that's I don't know a wild spot but then on nights like tonight She's pretty calm, had a little bit of a breeze pushing us to the shore earlier, but yeah, I'd say she's almost as flat as Milford gets tonight. Courtney, one of my favorite trips to guide this season was called the Paddle and Walk. We uh, get folks up sometimes to Giants Gate Falls, which is a massive waterfall, and Lake Ada, which is the Mori entrance to the underworld. We're walking through lush rainforest. Can you just tell us a little bit about the rainforest here and the birds so this is a temperate rainforest around us it's all virgin native bush which is pretty awesome because there's not a whole lot of spots in new zealand that are just covered in this much native bush fjordlands new zealand's largest national park if you put all the other national parks together inside Fjordland, you'd still have more room. So quite a lot of native bush, and it does change a wee bit depending on where in Fjordland you are. But right around Mandela and I, we're looking at a lot of Rimu trees and Southern Rata and Silver Beach. And these are all native trees. Beach forest is the largest native forest left in New Zealand, and there's a lot of it. When you drive the Milford Road into Milford Sound, that's the Tinamu that you hear in the background, the water taxi. It's heading up to Sandfly Point to the end of the Milford track to pick up some hikers. So I might come buzzing by again. It's got two 250 horsepower engines on the back of it, and it looks like so much fun to drive. But it's new this season. That's our new water taxi. But yeah, so he's buzzing around as we uh, bob around on his boat wake. And then 
yep, trees. <laughs> and there's a bunch of toy toys in front of us, which is New Zealand's tallest grass. Some of these rimu trees that we're looking at are massive. They're probably 300 years old to be that big. They're really slow-growing trees. And the very first beer ever brewed in New Zealand was brewed here in Fjordland, down in Dusky Sound by the crew of Captain Cook's Endeavour. And they put rimu branches in the beer to bitter it because they didn't have any hops. So it had a bit of vitamin C, and that was to help ward off scurvy. So I'm going to hand the mic back to Mandela because we got a paddle. <laughs> We've got boats <laughs> coming through, and we're in the channel. <laughs> and we'll be back right with you in a moment. All right, we paddled back up Arthur River Valley, and we're still kind of in a channel, I guess, of the Tainamu. But um, that's how it goes when you're recording on location. Here we are in some sea kayaks, and there's definitely some wind blowing, and we're you know passing some electronics back and forth as we record here on location in New Zealand on the South Island, Milford Sound, Pio Pio Tahe, Fjordland National Park. Courtney. You were just talking about the Rimu beer and the first beer that was brewed here. And actually, the anniversary of that beer being brewed just passed April 1st, 1773. But you're a beer maker. You're a brewer. And you've been brewing here in Milford Sound in this isolated spot. And the water you use is phenomenal. Can you first tell us about the water that you use to make the beer here and then some of the beers you've made here in Fjordland? Yeah, so Mandela and I can see where the water I brew with comes from by looking to our right lady elizabeth bowen falls it's a 163 meter high glacially fed waterfall pouring out of the bowen valley and it's just west of the boat terminal here in the milford township and we have a hydro generator connected to that waterfall it's connected to the river really just above the waterfall big pipeline um, and that comes down behind the boat terminal to like a big generator shed and that's what powers the town and then we have our water supply going down to like two massive containers and then down in just using gravity basically to get down into town it does go through a filtration system but yeah that's where all of our water comes from is Ladybone Falls and there's ice only so many hours ago up on the glaciers and it's pretty tasty water and so sometimes we're lucky enough to make pretty tasty beer with it sometimes I'm not sure that it's the water that's the problem but um, <laughs> it doesn't turn out as well but yeah when I first arrived here in New Zealand, there was a Wild Foods and Brews Fest, which is? Uh, Wild Foods and Brews was the child of Adam Collier, I'd say, and Tex, Matt Walker, to Roscoe's Guides, and they're into their home brewing, and they're both hunters, and especially Tex is really into hunting, and Adam's a keen diver. He's a good free diver and scuba diver and a spear fisherman, and so they started this Wild Foods Festival with some Milford locals, and it was just a little thing at Paddle Inn, which is uh, where all of us Roscoe's Guides live here in uh, Milford Sound in our little village of employee housing and we have a bar and we're quite proud of it we're the only ones that have a bar since they shut the pub on us a few years ago here in Milford and Tex is a beautiful wood maker and he 
made a beautiful bar for it. And that uh, is where it all started in the Avery at Petalon Inn. And it's grown. The event's gotten bigger and bigger to where now we're setting up these big marquees. We've got a lot more home brewers. And all of the brews were always made by Melford locals. And all of the food was caught or um, killed and prepared by Melford locals. And it has become our best event. It's so much fun. And we had more than 200 people last year and this year. Ty, this uh, lovely guy, he's an amazing musician that used to work in Melford ages ago, lives in Queenstown, has come down and put on some live music. Mandela played the didgeridoo for everybody and blew their minds this year, which was pretty awesome. And yeah, we had some of the local fishermen give us a bunch of shark and crayfish. So I made a bunch of food. And then there was venison and wild pig and kenna, which are sea urchins. And uh, last year we had wallaby stew and possum stew and sea cucumber salad and all sorts uh lots of like pawa fritters or abalone fritters and yeah it's amazing it's a big feast and now we've gotten some local craft breweries involved i used to work at the golden bear brewery up in mapua which is up in the able tasman area and yeah he drove the length of the south island to come down to our festival this year and brought us a couple of kegs so cho jim that was amazing there was uh, Invercargill Brewing, Jabberwocky, and Altitude, a couple of uh, local breweries that also gave us some beer because we were worried that we didn't have enough piss for everybody this year. And so we reached out to some of the brewers and they were happy to help. And some of them even came to the event and it rained, I think, 400 mils or something insane that day. Beautiful sunshine the week before, beautiful sunshine after, but classic Fjordland, major, major heavy rain, and amazing job on all the tarpology and such that everybody put up to put on a really awesome event. The whole community came together for that one. So, yeah, it was a pretty rad success. You were on the trail less traveled, and today the trail less traveled is being harvested for you in a sea kayak. And my guest this evening, Courtney Quinchell, is in a matching Necky Sea Kayak. We're floating here at the mouth of the Arthur River Valley. This is the end of the Milford Track. 54-kilometer walk used to be the only way to get into this isolated region of Fjordland. You'd have to walk for four days to get here. Courtney, when Lieutenant James Cook first landed in New Zealand, he landed up in Gisborne, up on the northeast of the North Island. He wrote in his journals that the sound of the birds was deafening. We wouldn't be able to have a conversation right now in our kayaks with a rainforest 200 meters away because the birds would be so chatty. Can you tell us about the birds here and perhaps what was the only native mammal to New Zealand and what maybe continues to threaten the birds to this day? Well, we have some mechanical birds uh, above us. There are some planes landing on the airstrip here in Milford. That's what that sound is. But the bird song in the trees used to be louder than that. If we were here a thousand years ago, you'd probably hear a lot of birds in the background of the mic. But sadly, 46% of New Zealand's native birds are now extinct. And what we have left of the other 54 or so percent are really small numbers. So moa were really large native birds. 
They were bigger than ostrich or emu, and the Maori hunted them because they were a major food source. Uh, so land mammals, there's not too many of them that are native to New Zealand. There's just the short-tailed and the long-tailed bat, and the greater short-tailed bat is the third one, but it's now extinct. And then sheep, dogs, rats, stoats, deer, pretty much every other land mammal in New Zealand was introduced by humans. And when humans first arrived here, we hunted the native birds because there were so many of them and they were quite large because they evolved without too many predators. So the Maori hunted the moa to extinction. And with that, some other birds went extinct like host eagles. If the host eagles were still around today and I was standing up, I'm about 1.7 meters tall and so if I was standing up and a host eagle was next to me, it'd be taller than me and it'd have a wingspan longer than our kayaks, which are a couple meters long. So pretty massive. If you can imagine an eagle that was big enough to take out an ostrich, those would have been pretty impressive birds, but they went extinct when the moa went extinct because that was their main food source. We used to have a lot of kakapo in this area, and they're the world's largest parrot. They're nocturnal and flightless because they evolved without many natural predators. They're quite clumsy, and they freeze when they feel threatened. So we hunted them for a food source because they're about three times the size of a chicken, so they're quite big. And if you look at pictures of like Donald Sutherland or the early pioneers and that that came here, there's lots of kakapo in the photos, and in the 1950s, New Zealanders realized no one was seeing kakapo anymore. And uh, there was a guy named William Henry, a conservationist, and he got behind the effort to save them and looked all over the mainland of New Zealand and found about 36 of them. And they put them on Codfish Island, which is a predator-free bird sanctuary island down off the coast of Stewart Island. And their numbers are slowly coming back. They only mate every like three to five years, so not too many of them. And the last ones that they found on the mainland of New Zealand were found in the Milford area in the Gulliver Valley and the Sinbad Valley. We think they survived here longer than in other parts of New Zealand because of the isolation of this area. So these valleys are made up of massive granite vertical cliffs that are over a thousand meters tall. And then there's a lot of water. The Tasman Sea is flooding the fjords with salt water. So like the Sinbad Valley is enclosed by Mount Phillips and Maida Peak, it's a big wall of granite in the back, basically a big bowl. And then the fjord or Sinbad Cove is on its uh, northern side. And so these valleys, the bird life were able to survive in longer because they're so isolated and it was harder for stoats and rats and other predators and land mammals to get out here to climb up up over the mountains or swim across the fjord. So yeah, we've got a couple of bird sanctuaries around Melford, like in the Sinbad Valley, where we do lots of pest control, stoat and rat trapping and possum control and trying to get the numbers of invasive pests down and the numbers of native bird life increasing. Courtney, I'd love for you to share with us your further experiences with the wildlife here, particularly the bottlenose dolphin and what it's like to race them in the fjord. Oh, well, they'll always win. Uh, They're a lot faster swimmers than we are paddlers, unfortunately, but the dolphins are hands down my favorite part of this job. 
I'm a very lucky woman to be living and working in New Zealand's most beautiful national park. And Fjordland is hands down my favorite part of New Zealand after seeing the whole country or a lot of it. I love it here, but the dolphins are my favorite when they show up. There's nothing better than paddling around with them. And they love when you chat to them, so I always talk to them. And they come right up underneath my kayak. They're the largest bottlenose dolphins in the world down here because this is the farthest south you will really find bottlenose. And so the water's quite cold in Fjordland. So the bigger they are, the warmer they can keep their internal body temperature. And so they're quite big. They're about the length of these kayaks. And yeah, they can be a couple meters long. And they're quite playful and social. And they really have their days of loving the kayaks and it's nothing, nothing like being loved by a bottlenose dolphin in Fjordland. It's pretty cool. Like a couple of them will get underneath your kayak at once and just start pumping water, like be belly side up underneath you. And I've actually ridden on a wave of bottlenose dolphins. I felt like I was on a chariot of dolphins, and it was pretty epic. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. That's just one of the things you do as a guide here. I'm looking towards a waterfall that's nine kilometers away, Sterling Falls, and that's another massive, massive glacier-fed waterfall that you paddle under. Tell us about paddling under that waterfall. Uh, it's kind of like paddling into a hurricane. It's pretty good fun. Depending on uh, how spicy you want to make it for your clients and how much rain we've had and how big it is, it can be a varied experience. <laughs> It's 151 meters high, and depending on how much water is coming off of it, it can be very, very powerful. And definitely plenty of wind in there to capsize a little sea kayak. But we paddle into it because it's really good fun. And the bigger it is, the more challenging it is. And I've definitely had some fun experiences under there. It's a lot of wind and water in your face, but it's one of those things that unless you come work for Roscoe's, you don't get to do every day. And so every time I paddle into Sterling Falls, even though I sometimes get to do it twice a day or even three or four times, I'm loving it every minute of it. It's super exhilarating and fun, and the clients really love it too. So, yeah, it's kind of a special thing that we just offer on these trips, and it's crazy fun. And the rainbows that you get in it and the twilighter in the summer, like when the sun's hitting it, you're just paddling through full arching rainbows in the spray and the mist while, like, dolphins swim around you. It's, it's pretty it's pretty good. <laughs> Welcome to New Zealand. And the place she's talking about, we're floating in right now as we record the show. Courtney, thank you so much for your time and energy joining me here on the trail less traveled. It's been a pleasure to float in the sea kayaks with you and uh, learn about your life. Cheers, Mandela. It's been uh, fun chatting <laughs> and a pretty amazing setting. So, yeah, thank you. Courtney, what have you learned from your time here in New Zealand? Uh, just to cruise. <laughs> Kiwis are pretty good at working really hard, but also knowing when to cruise and how to cruise. And it's a lovely way to live here. I like the work-life balance and yeah, I really love my job and doing something that I love makes work not feel like work most days. 
but yeah we also just have a really lovely time and don't get too stressed out about things over here and that's probably my favorite thing that I've learned in New Zealand the Perada, the pilot boat is heading out up to Leeds to go do an exchange Mandela's been lucky enough to do some of those pretty cool you have to go basically put our skipper on board the big cruise ships so that they can drive them around the fjord because they're locals and they know where all the shallow bits and rocks and cliffs are and then the international skippers take over when they get back out to the big open water of the tasman and now we're getting the wake uh, from the parada that is slowly drifting mandela and i towards little arthur island (laughs) Uh, this beachy area directly in front of us This is the second time while recording here that I've been recording while being surfed. The other time was in the sea cycle with Callum. And those are some pretty big waves in the swell. But I reckon we'll probably back it up a little bit. And then I'm going to have Courtney share some advice. So here I am, microphone in one hand, paddle in the other, no skirt on my kayak. Paddling backwards. She's one arm in it. I'm one arm in it. Courtney. So (laughs) my next question for you is, can you share some advice with the listener? Here we go, sculling with one hand. Water is dripping onto the equipment. There's no case on the cell phone. Note to self, invest in better waterproof gear for the trail less traveled recording equipment. (laughs) Courtney, can you share three bits of advice with the listener? I think it's worth taking time to get outside, like to spend time out of doors and in nature, but there's lots and lots of different ways to do that. So just find something that you like to do uh, and then do it because it's good for the soul, especially places like this, I guess. Check out the beautiful parts of your local area or your country or the world. Traveling is pretty amazing and fun but sometimes expensive and a bit harder to do but one of my favorite things is taking kiwis kayaking here because they're always so stoked on it and it's such an amazingly beautiful part of uh, New Zealand that sometimes it's just right there in your backyard so go out and see your national parks just find something that you enjoy doing and spend your time doing that and cruise (laughs) as the kiwis do beautiful courtney what song would you like to end the show with free from rudimental the video takes place in norway in the fjords and massive glaciated valleys up there sky's base jumping and his flight his climb and all of the footage is really beautiful and it's a cool song and every time i hear it it makes me want to fly Kia ora, Missoula. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to documenting humanity by collecting sound effects and interviews from the most remote locations around the planet. You can subscribe to The Trail Less Traveled podcast on iTunes and check out traillesstraveled.net to follow the show as it is recorded on location around the world. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Courtney Quintrell. Courtney is an international adventure guide specializing in skydiving, sea kayaking, whitewater kayaking, motorcycle touring, sailing, orienteering, and beer brewing. Courtney spent many years in Alaska, but now calls New Zealand home. She is passionate about Maori culture, 
and is, in my opinion, the ultimate outdoor babe. My name is Mandela, your host of The Trail Less Traveled, and my goal for the show is to take you, the listener, back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Therefore, every week, I will be interviewing an adventurer about what they do, how they do it, and how you can start adventuring in a similar fashion. The Trail Less Traveled is recorded at the Missoula Broadcasting Company, nestled in the mountains of Missoula, Montana, or on location around the world in order for me to find these adventurers and connect with them in their natural habitat. My adventure tip this week regards orienteering. Maps are drawn with the same symbols worldwide, and the colors on the map roughly resemble those you see in real life. Blue stands for water, white for normal forest, green for thick forest, black mostly for built objects, and yellow depicts open areas. However, brown representing elevation contours is the most important color for navigation. Fold the map so that you can point your thumb to your last known position. Make sure you can see the whole distance towards your next control. Always keep the map oriented according to your direction of travel. This way, you'll see the upcoming objects in the terrain as you move along your thumb on the map as you go. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week's adventure, please go on and get outside. Shred that gnar, because as we all know, the gnar simply does not shred itself.